Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Today, I'd like to invite you into a conversation I had with Dr. Jenny McLaurin and Dr. Bem Kuliat, two women in science who have written a book together entitled Designed to Heal. This book is a fascinating exploration of the human body's framework for healing, delving deeply into the science of healing on a cellular level and envisioning how this healing process can offer lessons for the healing needed in relationships in community and society. This book showcases each of the author's expertise in medicine and science, weaves it together with some very personal stories of healing in their own lives, and then fuses this all together with spiritual wisdom and understanding. I really loved this book, and I love the way that Jenny and Bem are working hard to integrate science into their language of faith, and I love their vision for the possibility of real healing in our society. The book itself is very inspiring, and this conversation was rich and joyful. I think you're going to enjoy getting to know these two friends. So let me start by giving you a bit of information about each of these women. Dr. Jenny McLaurin is a writer, pediatrician, and educator with degrees in medicine, public health, and theology. She's a national expert in community health programs and has been involved in caring for those in migrant communities, inner cities, indigenous Hawaiian clinics, homeless settings, centers for at-risk adolescents, and clinics for children with special needs. Jenny and her husband, Andrew, live in the Pacific Northwest and are parents to five adult children. Dr. Cymbeline, or Bem Kuliat, is a scientist, teacher, and entrepreneur. Bem earned degrees in cell biology and genetics from the University of the Philippines at Los Baños and received a doctorate in biomedical sciences from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, University of Tennessee. Her postdoctoral work involved identifying the functions of genes sequenced in the Human Genome Project. Bem has taught at the university level and co-founded two biotechnology startup companies. Bem lives with her husband, Julio, and their son, Caleb, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We're going to get into this conversation, but as a special treat, at the very end of this podcast, if you listen all the way to the end, you'll get a few minutes of Bem and Jenny talking about their journeys of understanding their vocational call. It's pretty fun. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here. Jenny and Bem, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast today with All Shall Be Well. We're really excited to have you. Thank you. It's great to be with you. And I love the title of the podcast. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Let's begin by helping our listeners get to know you a little bit. You both 
tell some wonderfully personal stories in this book. So I'd be interested to hear more of your background and particularly about the development of your friendship. Well, thanks. Um, I'll start, I guess. This is Jenny. And my background is I am a pediatrician, public health physician, and I also took a master's degree in theology and Christian culture up at Regent College in Vancouver, and really wanted to just integrate all of who I am and how I think as much as I possibly could. And so I loved that sojourn into theology, and it helped me put words into a lot of my understandings that were more visceral. During that time, I had the opportunity with the Templeton Foundation grant to invite pastors to consider the, how science may be a field that enriches not only their faith, but the faith of their congregations. And so it was called um, Pastoral Science, and it was for North American pastors. And we invited pastors to, pastors to travel with us for a year as a cohort and to um, experience science, not as something that was a threat, but something that brought about wonder and awe and helped them worship God. And in that, I had the opportunity to hire a sort of scientist in residence for our cohort. And Ben was the person who came to mind because we met few years before that in Tennessee when I was giving a bioethics seminar to for church people and she was there and we just became fast friends instantly I just was so taken with her ability to paint a picture of her world of science for me and one that just made me wish I could crawl inside a microscope and see what she saw and be a part of um, what she did. And so she was able to bring that to us through words and lectures and just through her sense of um, being the person that she is, uh, the presence of them in my life and the life of those folks was just such a gift. And we've stayed friends ever since. Bem, tell us a little bit about your background. So, and I have been uh, training to be a scientist since I was in high school. And oh. um, <laughs> so very young, very young, uh, you know, I realized that, you know, the, the, just the delight, the joy and the challenge of, of pursuing a science career. And I got a very special scholarship in the Philippines to be in a very special high school that was really training scientists. And uh, my science career is, is unique in that I'm trained actually in different fields of science. And that is unusual because usually you specialize in something, especially mm -hmm. when you're at the PhD level. So I'm trained actually in three fields. Um, one is in genetics, um, the science of heredity and how you pass on traits and genes from one generation to another. I'm also trained in cell interactions and cell biology. And um, more recently, when I came to the United States, you know, I'm, I started getting a more um, big picture kind look at science and processes. And I went into uh, biomedical sciences and also genomics and learned a little bit more about molecules and pathways. So I'm actually have degrees in three different 
feels, which is, I think, good because, you know, it showed me actually looking back that I was always looking for interactions and looking mm. at things in different perspectives. You know, I'm not just a molecular biologist. I'm a geneticist. I'm a cell, you know, expert in cell biology. So I think that's really important in terms mm -hmm. of being able to look at something just just from different perspectives so officially I, you could call me a molecular geneticist is <laughs> really my my science background so and I became a Christian when I first started training to be a scientist so in high school I was a product of the um, commando evangelism you know the little yellow booklet that for spiritual loss. And so I was uh, basically in a cafeteria and somebody came and sat down, an alumni actually of Philippine Science High School and just shared the gospel with me. And I remember that um, what really struck me about it was that God had a plan for my life. Hmm. Was, that was very attractive to me because at that time, coming from a childhood that I did and partly described in the book, I felt, you know, damaged. I felt you know, incapable of attempting big important things in this world and you know just was really in quite a you know a mess I think at that time mm -hmm. so when when this lady uh, uh, shared with me that there was a God who loved me and that there was some plan <laughs> that my life is going to be not as messy as it was and that it was this big plan that a loving God uh, you know had set in motion for me that for me I think was the um, you know, what had attracted me. And, and so that was Campus Crusade was doing the four spiritual laws. But, you know, I left the city, Manila, to, to train uh, in college in a different province uh, in Los Banos Laguna in the University of the Philippines, which is the best science high school, uh, science college in, you know, in, in the Philippines. And uh, a friend of mine uh, in college invited me to InterVarsity because her sister has been there. And she said, oh, my sister said we should not. And there were a lot of strong campus ministries there, you know, Campus Crusade, Navigators, many, many. But my, my sister, my friend said, no, my sister said we should go to IBCF. <laughs> and then, and, and then I, I realized actually um, why her sister said that. And so I, I attended IBCF and was really uh, significant all four years of college to, um, to really understand, you know, what my Christian faith and what I, what I got myself into by becoming a, a, you know, a Christian. And then you met Jenny at this, at this um, conference, right? Yes. And what was your experience of that, of your friendship growth? Oh, that's amazing because we, we've been friends for nearly over a decade now and it has really grown and deepened. So at the beginning, I think it was a professional friendship. I think that, you know, she had a project, but I had a connection with her in terms of for the first time I saw someone that was has really integrated her profession with who she was and she's a Christian. And for me, Although I've been a Christian in high school and I've trained to be a scientist, you know, from the Philippines to the United States, those parts of my life were pretty, I would say, segregated. You know, I mm -hmm. went to church, I did prayer groups, I did studies, but in my profession, I focused on becoming a good, competent scientist. I wasn't very, I didn't have evangelical fervor to share my faith with anyone or, or you know, or talk about it in great detail. And uh, meeting Jenny and working on the um, on the project she had in Templeton was really an invitation to, you know, 
merging those two parts of my life that, you know, I love God and I was in this profession and how do I, um, my faith fueled my science, but that was a private thing, you know, wonder and awe. I would see things, discoveries, but I didn't really publicly, you know, um, explained or, um, or describe, you know, the, those, um, how they affected each other. So the Templeton grant was the first time that it became intentional. What is it about my science that, few, that informs and strengthens my faith? How does my faith fuel my science? And so it was really that invitation that, um, of Jenny to that, to that uh, project that got me started on that road. And then a lot as we work on that project and when it ended, you know, there were so many areas of, I think, where we connected and we just continued communicating with each other um, until we, um, she had a, a retreat of friends and I was there and I started talking about this wound healing again, which is what I talked about in her grant. And then they realized how much of this um, could really be helpful to others. And, uh, and by the time that we had that retreat, that Jen and I have shared a lot of life already, joys, victories, challenges, you know, all of the things that you go through in life. And so our friendship has really strengthened by the time, you know, we started writing the book. But writing the book itself to really also deepened our friendship, I think, in areas where we don't, we didn't agree or areas where we were coming from different perspectives or just different insights from one another. I think it became deeper when we wrote the book. And then now that we're promoting it, that we keep learning new things about each other. Oh, you, I didn't know you were IBCF. Oh, I didn't know you did this or you did that. So this has been a really long journey, I think, of knowing each other, seeing how our faith and our professions, you know, had helped sh shape who we are. And so we get to rejoice in each other's, you know, <laughs> um, as we learn more about each other. So this has been a gift and it continues to, I think deepen as we, we speak to people like you and as we, you know, keep, you know, discovering new things about each other in this journey. Well, it's, it's really beautiful to, um, to see, to hear your story of the way that God brought you together and the ways that you're collaborating, um, you know, in, in your, in your work together and in your personal lives, um, Let's dig into your book, Designed to Heal, which I really enjoyed reading. Um, and the way I would describe the main idea is that um, the human body's innate healing processes, they, they work as kind of a parable for social and emotional healing on many levels, personally and in society. Um, and so I'm wondering, could you just to orient the uh, listeners, can you walk us through a bit of an overview of those four main processes? So Ben, why don't you do that? Because that's your specialty. Yes. So we take, uh, we take readers through the four main stages of, of healing um, in wound healing and see how we can glean insights from that. So first step would be clottings when there is an injury uh, you need to stop bleeding and in order to preserve life. And so this is a, a stage in healing where, uh, you know, the best thing would be not to advise or have judgment or bias or, 
or assign blame. This is just a time in healing where you need to stop the situation from getting worse. You need to stop and form a clot, like what it happens physically in the body. The second stage is, uh, is a stage called inflammation. And I think people recognize that a lot. And this is a temp of our body actually to defend and to clear out dying tissue, to clear out pathogens that are in there, uh, and also actually to set up uh, an environment so that the next stage, which is um, uh, really making new tissue to replace what is damaged, uh, happens. You cannot get to good making good tissue to replace damaged ones unless you have you know, kind of gone through a healthy inflammatory response. Mm -hmm. And this is the stage where we spend a lot of time in the book because this is a stage where we're stuck in right now in society. And one of the reasons why you know, we wrote the book, we're just in a state of chronic outrage, anger, um, and unforgiving spirit. And there's just a lot in situations personally and communally where we're stuck in this aggressive uh, defense mechanisms that also happens actually in difficult wounds in the body. So tissue formation is also one where um, when, when new tissue is being formed to replace damaged ones where Jenny and I talk about a healing matrix, that this is a very complicated way. When you're trying to make new tissue to replace damaged ones, you need things to grow, you need things to mature, you need things to be shaped and talk to each other, you know, the cells need to talk to each other in order for function to be returned. And so we talk about a healing matrix as a metaphor for community, that you need uh, really a community where there are diverse opinions, diverse backgrounds, diverse voices that would allow you know, proper healing to happen. And then the last one would be scarring. So today, you know, it's um, our body, our adult bodies are um, at when we are injured, goes through a scarring mechanism. So true tissue regeneration happens when we are uh, in uh, development in our mother's womb, but that's a very narrow and still mysterious part of physical healing. So typically we scar and in order for, um, you know, for tissue or for organs to continue functioning, that, that scar needs to be formed in order for, um, for the body, for, the, for us to survive and be able to regain some function. And so we talk about that there are some scars, that healthy scars. In fact, that our scars are uh, memorials to things we have survived. And, um, but they can also be bad scarring where they would, where a scar is not, um, is still hurting us in a way that prevents us from having really a flourishing and abundant life. So it's in the book, we take through physical wound healing and then we use it, look at the principles of physical healing uh, in order to gain lessons and principles that we can help healing the non-physical wounds of our lives and our communities. And you, you do this so beautifully where you explain the science of each stage of healing. And then you, in, in your writing, you marry that with um, descriptions of spiritual practices and that, that people can engage in. Um, and it's throughout the whole book. I'm, I'm thinking about um, one example where you talk about the dangers of physical inflammation, and then you help us think about how emotional inflammation, like this sense of outrage that you're talking about, that we see so much in our culture, 
um, and how that can be dangerous. And then you suggest these spiritual practices like intercessory prayer or the St. Ignatius examine as ways to kind of reflect and cool down um, our, our emotional inflammation and that those are, are the antidotes that we can employ. So I, and I love the way that you both, you did this together. So I'd, I'd be curious to hear more about how you envisioned those connections between body processes and specific spiritual practices. And if you have other examples that you'd love to share. For me, this was the, the center of the whole book. It was there's clotting, inflammation, your tissue building, scarring. Those are the four things your body does. And your body's 100% oriented, a healthy body is, towards healing a wound, not for staying wounded. It does everything in its power to move from a state of woundedness to a state of restoration with as much function as possible. So scars are the answer to not being wounded forever. Maybe they're not perfect, but they allow you to keep going. And I just was so struck with the way our current society, I think more so than ever, almost acts like it's supposed to stay in a permanent state of woundedness. And I would say the church is as guilty as the secular group in that way. And we get more and more angry and more and more inflamed rather than trying to figure out our way to the other side. So spiritually, if God designed our human body for healing, you know, certainly he he designed our corporate body of Christ for healing. What might the practices look like that would be similar to those four stages? So for me, the clotting is just stopping and um, realizing things can get out of hand really quickly. So how do we stop the bleeding? And whether that's biting our tongue and not saying something that's going to make it worse or not giving advice, whether that's embracing somebody, um, bringing them a casserole, as Ben talks about, um, <laughs> providing comfort, doing the first thing in front of you that you can do, the immediate. It's all about the immediate response and not pointing blame and not not waiting for somebody to ask you. And so that I think that spiritual practice might be not being judgmental more than anything else. Um, but then the practices of a whole lot of the practices that we go to, the spiritual practices, do involve both a pause and then a reframing in our minds and an attitude of hopefulness. And so some of the practices are practicing gratitude uh, is very important to counter inflammation. Um, practicing listening so we can hear what people who are wounded have to say about a situation even if we disagree with them we may be the the person who is wounded the other or we may be the person who feels wounded or it may be both and i know that we're going to talk about race relations at some point but 
in that situation, um, I think there's feelings on multiple sides about who is who is wounded, who isn't, that sort of thing. And it takes um, really the fruits of the spirit. It takes patience. It takes listening. It takes love. And all of those things take practice to cultivate. We can't do them overnight. So some of what we write about in the book is practicing a daily um, discipline of growing in those fruits of the spirit. And so that when the deepest of all things happen in our life, we've got, we've prepared those muscle fibers. We've prepared those platforms for healing where we actually can um, build some new tissue. And if we haven't practiced it with the tiny things, it's really hard to do it with the bigger things. That's exactly it. I mean, it, it makes me think, you know, as, as you're talking about those daily, um, those daily practices that it's almost like the things that we eat, what we, you know, kind of our daily habits of um, nutrition and exercise that that helps our body to be strong mm-hmm. and stable for, um, to prepare for moments where we need to engage in healing. And in a similar way, as we practice these spiritual disciplines that prepares us for, um, for engaging in healing emotionally and socially. I, I want to ask you some questions about, um, the concept of inflammation. I keep coming back to this and thinking about it. Um, and you know, that it's, it's necessary for physical healing. It has the, it, it, there's a functionality where it cleans out, um, germs and debris, right? That's what I understood from, from your writing, that that's part of the inflammation role. But then of course, when it becomes chronic, that that is actually a problem. And I've been thinking about um, what we, what wisdom we can find in that, because I think similarly, we're at a point where we, there are places where we do need some inflammation and Mm-hmm. Um, where people need to be able to speak up and say, there's something um, wrong, right. you know, not clean yeah. happening here, right. but that also it can go overboard into, into a point where um, this, this sense of outrage or, you know, hopelessness. So what can we learn from the body about what that, what that balance is? Right. One of the key points is inflammation, if it's in its proper form, is a good thing. So because it tells you in your body that something's wrong and it gets the little soldier (laughs) fighting cells who clean up the debris and get the garbage out of the way, they create a platform for healing. That's the point of inflammation is to create a platform for the next step. It's not just to stay in a rage. And so some inflammation that tells us, ouch, this, this is bad. And, oh, I'm feeling pressure. Oh, this is uncomfortable. It's getting hot here. Um, that's okay. And it, so it's, it's not right for Christians or for society to say, let's take racism as an example. Well, that was in the past. Can't we all get along and move forward? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's not all in the past and there still is racism now, sadly. And we may not feel like we are individually the one causing it, but 
it's right to point out where the wound still is. That's right. If there's still garbage there, that's right. But then that needs to be used as a platform for healing. So we have to understand how to move from the pointing it out and claiming it and saying this is wrong to prepare the table for healing. And I think that's where we seem to be getting stuck over and over again, whether it's in our families or whether it's in our churches or whether it's systemically. So, Pam, I'll let you. Yeah, so and my company actually works a lot looking at inflammation and to let, you know, to balance it, not to wipe it out, but to balance it. Because a lot of our drugs today wipes out or really brings down some very powerful molecules. And when they do that, I can name you 20 failed human clinical trials where they're just trying to bring down completely very low certain inflammatory molecules. And we've realized that the defense mechanism of the body when the body when the tissue is injured is more complex than that there are things that need to stay high there are, there are things that need to go low you need a balance as mm. opposed to just wiping out that cell or wiping out that you know that inflammatory molecule so every time we're looking at damage we're actually tracking different genes different different molecules so that complexity needs to be be there, certain things need to be up, certain things need to be down. But what we have found is that when you're looking at very powerful inflammatory responses that tend to become chronic or hurt tissue beyond the initial injury is that um, there's many things driving it. There are some key molecules that when they are going aggressive, they are going to pretty much take over and, you know, kind of control the situation. And I've been thinking a lot about you know, thinking about that, that there are certain pro-inflammatory factors that can really make things worse. And looking at just my own personal experience in the communities I've been in, I see factors like not just anger. Anger is usually the first one. It's good because when you're angry about something, it means you care about that issue or you've been hurt. You know, you don't, you don't, respond in anger if something really is not that important to you or you haven't been hurt in some way. But there's also things like Jenny said, gossip, misinformation, you know, unforgiving spirits, slander, malice, you know, obscene talk, many things the Bible taught told us that when these are present, that would, you know, cause those uh, things. So, so that's just, I would like to, you know, to add that um, there are many factors and that you need to identify what's causing some situation to really continue becoming inflamed. That makes a lot of sense. And it, it points to um, those spiritual disciplines that we need to engage in all the time so that we have the discernment to choose, you know, where to, where to lean into that inflammatory energy and where it needs to cool down. In the book, you both talk about some trauma that you experienced in your childhood and the way it impacted your adult life. And Bem, you share really vulnerably about the ways your chaos in your childhood created some scars that resulted in qualities that helped you succeed in life. You, you have this one uh, sentence where you write, meanwhile, scar tissue kept advancing over the joyful parts of my inner life, each time a new crisis reinforced the rationale for my vigilance and restraint. And this is so relatable, this experience of building skills out of crisis that then cause problems later. So I guess I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more of your experiences 
with developing those coping skills and qualities for success and what are the risks and benefits you found um, and what you can what you can offer people who are, find themselves in a similar situation? That's, that's a great question, Anne. And I have to say that those skills were built over a long period of time. You know, they didn't come instantly and they came with rebukes and <laughs> advice and uh, people telling me, hey, especially my son and my husband saying, mom, you're always thinking about the worst things that could happen. You're scaring me because I always have a plan A, B, C, D and E because I'm looking at what things could go wrong. So it doesn't make for very good company, nor, you know, it doesn't inspire preparedness sometimes. Sometimes it inspires fear in mm. the people I love when I'm telling them this could happen. He said, oh, I didn't think those two horrible things could happen. Now you're making me think about these horrible things that could happen. So that's the bad side of it is that, you know, uh, being prepared certainly is good. Anticipating problems is good. So many of the skills that I had learned to, to cope with that, and I'll just go through them pretty quickly because I put them down. Mm -hmm. I go to scripture a lot, and that's from my IBCF day. So when I am troubled and something bad happens, there are many worn out pages in my Bible that help me how to lament, help me how to find comfort and peace and always reminds me that you know, God's presence and love and that he's working out something, even if I can't see it, or I don't like his plan of action, you know, that I'm seeing. <laughs> so prayer. So I think scripture and prayer are the two things I, I turn to very quickly. And initially my, you know, in my prayer, it's often that I suggest things to God, what, what he should do so that my life will be easier and something could be resolved quicker. Sure. I think my yeah, I think over time, as I grow older, prayer has become just being with God, hmm. you know, listening and learning as opposed to submitting proposals as to how he should resolve something or what he should do in somebody's, you know, attitude or something like that. But it's also expanded. It's not just me praying. I actually have a group of women in my church that they are my first text when something horrible happens. I text, I call, I email, and I tell them, hey, I'm in the hospital with Julio. Hey, this has happened with my child. Can you pray about this? I have a conflict with a friend. So prayer is not just becoming a personal thing to me. Increasingly, it's becoming a communal practice for me. And, and that involved letting people into my life. That's a coping skill I had to learn. I was not very good at it in high school. I got better with IVCF, and as I'm older, I'm taking more risk to let people in so that they can pray for me, they can help me, and they can do things for me. I'm building my healing matrix. So I'm getting better at letting people into my life and speak to me and not react with anger or pride or something like that. And then these things I've learned from Jenny, actually, in terms of spiritual practices, rest. I'm not very good at resting. <laughs> Very, very bad. And the three hour difference between Oak Ridge, Tennessee and, and Washington State was very hard in the writing of this book and even scheduling podcasts because I would start working on the book at nine in the evening until two in the morning. And then Jenny would realize, why are you listening to my text at midnight? It's one o'clock in Tennessee. Go to bed. I probably what? didn't say that. Doctor's <laughs> orders. Doctor's orders. Why are you listening? It's like, then why are you texting me? <laughs> she forgot that it was like midnight here. So and she would remind me, don't work, to, you know, we can, we can do this. You don't need to kind of burn six hours till two in the morning, go to bed, doctor's orders. I literally have texts with Jenny playing, you know, telling me that. So rest, she stopped me and reminded me, Sabbath. I'm very bad with rest. 
I keep going until I'm exhausted. The other one is celebration. I learned that from Jenny also that I used to be that I think I would celebrate when most of the things in my life are good and in order and happy. I think Jenny has taught me that you can find joy and you can celebrate something good in your life while some part of it is a mess or some part of it is unraveling. I had to learn that. And so I'm so grateful for her for those two coping skills, rest and celebration, joy. I think a lot of us need Jenny in our lives telling us to go to bed. (laughs) Yes, yes. Rest and celebration. I learned so much from Jenny. You know, I think part of that childhood experience is also feeling like you have to be perfect and um, you cannot let anything go wrong. And I had some of that too, that you have to, you have to achieve more than enough in order to have a safety wedge. And um, I love what one of my daughters painted for me on a mother's day and it's in my office and it says, it's, there is no way to be a perfect mother, but there are a million ways to be a good one. Mm-hmm. And I just love that, you know? And I think part of our childhood scars is also comparing ourselves to others. And I know that's true in academia. And I know that you have people listening for an academia and I've been in academia. <laughs> it's a very competitive environment and it's very much about who, and it, including in Christian, because that's when I was in you know, who's had the latest publication and who's gotten Mm. um, promoted and all that sort of thing. And it's, it's very, there's a fine line between tooting your own horn, waiting for somebody else to toot it. And, you know, sort of how you get your self-esteem professionally and whether you have that internal sense of who you are that isn't a professor that isn't a woman scientist, you know, that isn't even a mother. It's just who you are, you know, as a beloved child of God and going back to that again and again and again and seeing everyone else that way too as their primary title, right? Because we are wrapped up with titles in academia. Right. And, um, I think if you've had a, a tough childhood, it's even harder to let yourself not be, um, let your guard down when it comes to how you're known. Mm-hmm. Well, and what I hear you saying, both of you, is that um, in in this conversation and in the book is that you're both aware of the scars that you have from childhood that, and even I think that awareness helps move people mm-hmm. forward. Um, and it, it leads me to this next idea that I wanted to, um, to talk about with you. You In the book, you talk about compassionately tracing our scars as a method for healing them. And you say this, um, this one beautiful sentence, you say, life-giving revision and remodeling are more likely when we touch our collective scars, compassionately acknowledge them, and embrace the full community into the reshaping of the wound. So I'd love to talk about this a little bit more, um, you know, both thinking about, I think even just in the in the habits you described, that is maybe what I would see as compassionately tracing our own scars from childhood 
Um, but I'm curious to think about what it looks like um, in our in our country, in our world, especially around you know issues of systemic racism and political divides. What does it look like to compassionately trace our scars? One of the things about scars as a physician that I see is a lot of people try to hide them. Hmm. And one of the, and particularly scars of self-harm, which I do see a lot in adolescents. And what them helped me understand is that scars physically, they do remodel over our entire lifetime because our body continues to tug on them and pull on them so that they continue to fit the shape of our body as it ages and as it changes um, with using different functionalities. And so they, they have to tug sometimes when we don't want them to. And what Bem and I are both understanding is sometimes when we feel a tug on something that used to hurt, and a lot of people talk about triggers now, and triggers are, we're told, don't trigger somebody, don't trigger me, don't let's not talk about racism then, or let's not talk about being back in the South because of what happened last time. So we were just at a family wedding, you know, it's all these things you're not supposed to talk about. Mm. And, um, but the reality is if we do compassionately in the right space, you have to have a space of trust, acknowledge some of those scars, whether it's, you know, you're at a wedding and you're you're with close ones who are divorced or who are widowed. And it's it's also a it's a time where they get their scars get hurt. Um, you know, do you how do you compassionately acknowledge those and talk about ways of of still dancing, right? At the wedding of still going forward. So systemically with our country, I think. It's saying, oh, oh, you know, I don't even know what your scars feel like if I am talking to a black friend, because I don't. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't experienced that. But, you know, tell me, when does it feel like it tugs the most? When does it hurt the most? And that's just interpersonally. But I think collectively, we need to do that as a as a group, maybe church to church. Yeah. So, um, so Anne, you know, I'm always curious. I'm so glad that you asked this question. You're the first interviewer that did this, and got me thinking about a lot of things. And I, I initially, I, I hesitate from dealing with uh, issues of, of racism because I did attempt early in my career. And uh, what is different is that as an immigrant, and even if I'm non-white, and I've, you know, and my family has experienced sporadic, um, you know, racism. The, the structures in America that um, prevent, you know, um, African-Americans, Hispanics and, and other races from thriving, that did not prevent me from having a successful career or having to live in a safe neighborhood. And so I always hesitate because, um, you know, I've been told that you know, it's very ungrateful for an immigrant like you who has been showered with opportunities. And that is true. That's a fact that I have been showered with opportunities and none of the, the structures that have bound other races from thriving here 
uh, I seem to have, you know, my career overcome those for, for a lot of, you know, of reasons. But I then realized that doctors treat diseases they've never experienced <laughs> because, you know, you don't have to be a good brain doctor or heart doctor, you know, if you have not suffered a heart attack or a stroke because you observe it, you have mm-hmm. data, you see it, you can speak into it. In fact, many doctors heal things that, you know, they've never experienced. Um, and so I figured, you know what, it, that, that's not a correct reason why I shouldn't, you know, uh, speak about this issue because I've been privileged in ways as an immigrant that others have not been. So I started thinking about what Jenny talks about. How do I compassionately acknowledge scars um, in America uh, as an immigrant? And I have to say, and that's the only thing I would add, I think, to this conversation is that I hear a lot in immigrant circles, for example, I'll use Filipinos because I mean, I'm in that community, obviously. It's like, why do we have to worry about reparations? Why do we have to listen to all these racist conversations? We didn't cause this. I mean, we were not part of, of you know, inflicting uh, racism or prejudice against, you know, historically in, um, in America. And so compassionately tracing um, scars in the issue of racism meant to me that I need to spend time actually understanding uh, and knowing what happened. My son was being very good with that. He gave me a book called The Color of Compromise, which is really how the American church or the Christian church had, you know, uh, what had happened there that uh, had helped, you know, foster um, racist structures, institutions, and just attitudes. And so for me, compassionately tracing scars in an immigrant mean that I am not exempted. I'm not exempted from looking at history, understanding it, and seeing how today things could still exist and I could be part of uh, whether it's policy, whether it is in my own church or neighborhood to make it better. I'm not exempted as an immigrant uh, because of that. And that's been new to me. And it's been something in my mind because you asked the question and Jenny had you know, kind of talked about this. That's what it means for me now to compassionately trace the scars you know, that have been in our country um, just because of history. So I know it's a simple step, but I think that's where I need I need to begin in in you know in myself and in the immigrants and the people that I interact with. Well, and it's a it's a very meaningful step, and I I really appreciate hearing your journey um, in that and Jenny your story, and then you know in the book you have um, wonderful examples as well, and you talk about the Vietnam War. Memorial, mm. um, as as, and I've been thinking more, you know, from your writing on that too about how powerful art and poetry is yeah. as a way of acknowledging, you know, entering into experiences that are uh, different from our own, and um, how much of that is just starting to bubble up out of the past eighteen months of. Um, racial reckoning and pandemic. And there's, I'll be eager to see um, more of what comes from this. So thank you for giving us that language of um, compassionately tracing our scars as a way to, to see what what's happening in our world. Mm. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, just to, as we, as we wrap up, I'm just so grateful for this book It and your ideas that you've been sharing. Um, it feels like the culmination of so many years of work and collaboration between you two. Um, and I'm just wondering what, what hopes do you have for this book? What fruit would you like to see come from it? 
So I, I would like, uh, I think from a personal level, I hope that the book helps people in their own uh, journey through healing some of their wounds and scars. Mm -hmm. and, and also that in their communities that we inhabit, at church, at work, um, that it would help us become promoters of healing rather than um, factors that cause you know, chronic inflammation and chronic damage. Yeah, and I would love to see particularly Christians take on this very hopeful image of being the body of Christ in unity and having the world witness what that looks like, because that is a, a body that promotes healing, even with his scars in his hands, his wounds in his hands as, as he rose. Um, I would love for us to be a people who promoted healing with justice. Um, healing with hope, healing with love and inclusion. And that takes all of us. And the book says that it's, it's about community and none of us can do it alone. All of us need each other. And so that's my idealistic hope. <laughs> I love that. I, I love I mean, that. So, yeah. You've get, this book has given us wonderful tools for healing for self-examination and and for the hope that you're talking about for the future, and I think we all we all need that hope right now. Mm. Well, I'll make sure that um, that our our listeners um, know how to find this book designed to heal. It's for sale anywhere books are sold, and um, we'll put links up on our our web page at the well. You can learn more about Jenny and Bim and their collaboration at Jenny's website, jennymcclaurin.com. That'll be on the article. So thank you so much for being here with, with me. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Same here. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even 5 or $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at give2iv.org slash thewell or through our donation link at The Well. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll catch you next time. Are you still here? Hooray! Welcome to the bonus content of our interview with Jenny McLaurin and Bem Kuliat, where we talk about their paths into vocation and calling. Enjoy! And one thing that really strikes me about both of you, both in your uh, stories that you told just here and also in the book, is the strong sense of vocation and calling 
you seem to both have, and maybe it's in hindsight that it all makes sense, but um, I'm aware that that is not always the case. Many, many of our listeners are perhaps in graduate school and they're more toward the beginning of their, of their journeys or they're at a crossroads. And so I'm curious to hear how your own sense of vocation and calling developed. I, I'll talk to that first. Mine, I'm bet, mine <clears throat> has not been as straightforward as Bam's, but I wanted to work with marginalized people forever, like when I was in college. Hmm. And I um, was always impressed by the work of missionaries and just others. And I, I love working with people from many different cultures. I really like learning about the whole world. And so that always appealed to me just personally. And then I worked with migrant farm workers as a volunteer in medical school. And I just saw this group of people that were in the US, but not of the US and how terrible their much of their day-to-day -day life was as they really toiled helping us have cheap food and um and tobacco in those <laughs> days in North Carolina and um and I grew to to really just feel such a connection with those families and and felt a sense of rightness in in doing my medicine with those families and and I learned a lot um, and it, it was an ability to do medicine the way I wanted to, which was relationally. That's That was also important to me. So vocationally, I saw myself as working in medicine, um, working with people that others um, maybe weren't working with. And um, definitely, definitely saw that as a vocation, as a calling. But I wasn't quite sure what to do with some of my calling for writing and for learning theology and for teaching. And my initial sojourn into the Protestant world was a world that didn't let women speak or lead. So, mm -hmm. and um, I didn't actually mind that at first. I just wanted to know Christ. I was like, okay, those are the rules. Um, but then I found out that those were the rules with some places and not with all places. Um, and as my faith deepened, so did my, it also got a little broader and I was encouraged to use my writing and speaking gifts, which I had on behalf of the church community. And I did that. And when I went to region, I wasn't really sure what was happening next. I was just following the call to understand theology a little bit more and immerse myself in that world. And so I think some of it is, you know, it's taken so long, I'm so old. So all of you who are young, who are listening, it's like, God isn't done with you when you're 60, it's crazy. Um, and he, there's all sorts of worlds that still open up. And so for me, it's been a long process of saying yes to another door that seems to be opening and not understanding necessarily how that is gonna work. Uh, and weave itself together with my past work, but just being willing to take some risks there if it if it does feel like it's the spirit calling and if it does 
get affirmed by others around me. And so that that's really, for me, been been what it's been. I didn't set out to, to say I'm going to marry my theology and my medicine and write this book, it, but it unfolded. And I keep walking into areas that unfold. And um, I love what Frederick Buechner said, which is the place that God calls you is where the um, your deepest passions in the heart and the world's deepest needs meet. That's, that's a paraphrase. Yeah. But um, I think that's true, but it's also true that you can find those places and they can be joyless because mm. you can feel like it's a duty. So mm. I would caution that, that there needs to be a, a flourishing of joy when those two things meet, or you're probably not going where you're meant to be going. Hmm, that's a good word. And I, I love that, a, a flourishing of joy where those meet. And, and I also really like um, how you talk about multiple callings, which I think many of us feel. And Bem, you've even mentioned that, I mean, even within your science that you've, you've been able to study multiple disciplines in that. Yes. Yeah. So my, um, so my calling is a little bit more linear, I think, in terms of how I ended up being, you know, professionally, uh, who I am today. And those were driven, um, there was, the joy was already there. I really love, you know, living things, biological processes, even at, you know, um, a big level before I became a scientist. So the joy was always there. I loved being in classes where there is a laboratory and I'm peering through a microscope or I'm making a chemical reaction, you know, happen. So, but my career was really driven by a lot of very significant, unique opportunities that I took because there was something that uh, propelled me towards that. So my, my uh, Philippine Science High School um, life was actually driven by, uh, by the fact that my dad had, you know, six children and I was very good in science in elementary school. And there was an opportunity for the first time, the uh, government of the Philippines had 11,000 children uh, who were top two in all of the high school, in all of the elementary schools and take aptitude exams for mathematics and science. And they selected hundred students out of that 11,000 in order to train in technical fields and to go from where they are in the provinces to Manila. And I was one of those 100 that was, um, you know, scored as this child should go into a science career. Wow. Yes. From such and a so, young age. <laughs> a young age. I was very, very young. And, 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 uh, and I think it was patterned by something in the United States. I was one of nearly 100 students who were screened from 11,000 top two very young children for aptitudes in mathematics, reasoning, and science. And my dad had six children. And this was an offer where my entire high school was paid for free in one of the top high schools in the Philippines. And so he put me on a plane at 13 years old to go to Manila, you know, in my first plane ride. And that's where I began training to be a scientist. And, and thankfully that indeed I was in a field where my natural abilities, like, you know, like Jenny, my natural gift for science was there. But in high school, when you go to college, you think about, okay, what, what do I do? And there was actually a time where I had to decide, is it medicine or is it science? Is it researcher, teacher? Mm -hmm. 
And I decided for research or teacher because at the time when I made that decision between high school to, um, to college, I felt very tender mentally and emotionally. I haven't processed a lot of the woundedness and hurt I had in my childhood. And I felt that if I went to medical school and really dealt with you know, patients who are truly hurting and had to save their life or had to do, make a call on you know, what to do in order to heal them, that I wasn't mentally and emotionally healthy to be a doctor. Mm. And I remember that because I had a missionary talk to me and said, Bam, you either go to medicine or you go to Upilus Banyas and you train to be a science teacher um, you know, path. And we both, and she knew me very well. And we both, yeah, I think at this point in your life where you're struggling with many things, that medical school will be very hard for you. And also I was an introvert, you're very introverted. I, didn't, I was socially awkward. I didn't know, I was frightened and anxious in social settings. So that's not good to be a doctor and you're introvert and you cannot deal with people. <laughs> and so I decided to deal, I went to the University of the Philippines and I was actually a plant geneticist. I figured, you know, that would be science, that would be wonderful, it would be plants and that wouldn't be too stressful. <laughs> so I'm actually trained to be a botanist and plant geneticist before I came to the United States. And when I went to the United States to train, again, that was a scientist coming from Oak Ridge National Lab, going to the graduate school. I was a teacher and she said, he was friends with the Dean of the graduate school. He said, hey, I have money in the United States. I'm in a top research lab. Give me your best student. Who do you want me to take from the Philippines? Because I was born and I was educated here who I can get through three different labs, biochemistry, immunology, molecular biology. So I could just offer a student you know, in a poor country an opportunity to research with the best scientists in the world. And the Dean of Students said, I know exactly who you're describing. You know, I have this graduate student doing a master's in genetics and I think what you're describing to me is perfect for the student. And so they made it possible for me to come to the United States and ask the Philippine government to give me a diplomatic visa so they could send a scientist to the United States to now. So, you know, very specific events that yeah. put me on these tracks. It's very different than what Jenny, you know, Jenny, you know, kind of went through. And so I took that opportunity because it was remarkable. Although I tell the Dean of Students, you just wanted to get rid of me. <laughs> and you, you shipped me off to the United States. So I, I still tease her. She's still you know, alive and very happy today that you know, with this, with what's going, what's happened in my career. And then in the United States, I trained, you know, 10 years that I was a researcher and I turned to biomedical sciences because of the human genome project what that meant you know, for medicine, mm. what that meant for our understanding holistically of what was going on you know, in processes. And then I made another decision 10 years ago. Do I just publish papers, teach, train students, or do I actually go and use my discoveries to develop something that would be of help to people, not just in publications? And so I left 10 years ago to be uh, the scientist and an executive for a biotech company so that we could use this protein whose function I discovered in tissue healing in order to heal injuries. So that's how it, you know, it happened. Wow. Well, what I, what I like about your story is that I hear so many, there's so many moments of crossroads right, where you have, you're kind of at a, a fork in the road where you need to choose one or the other and that there've been incredible opportunities and you've, you've chosen a beautiful path. It's, 
it's really fun to hear both of your stories. And I want to thank you for sharing these with us. We've, um, I'm really glad that I got to hear more about that. Thanks for joining us for this bonus content. We'll see you next time.